I do have to exercise self-control because so many thoughts have rolled through my mind with some of the things you said. Like when you said you woke up awkward, I was thinking, what is that like for, for Brian? Oh, I love it. I love being home. I'll tell you, that book uh, it was one of the most formational books in my life. I read it when I was in seminary. And um, I was in a class that had to read that book. And I was reading a 1,000 books every week, it felt like. So I, I loved to read, but didn't love to read in this period of my life. And I read this book. And it, it really nailed me between the eyes because I realized that, like many of you, I had grace on my life, but I had not looked into the grave, into my own grave. I would not died to self in so many ways. And the book is like a... It's like learning to read is the way I would, it's, it's such a simple read on what it means for us to surrender all. We sing that, right? All to Jesus I surrender, but how do we do that? And it's such a, a primary text in like, what does this really look like? And so just to amen what Brian said, if you're, if you're, if you're willing to read a book this year, that's a good one to read. So Jesus, help us to fix our hearts on you. We take a few moments and to press our hearts together into one collective unified body that you call your church. We're not the only one that's meeting right now, but we are one. And so we want to be one. We want to be one as you and the Father are one. And we ask, Lord, that as we collect our hearts together, that you would speak a word to us that would matter for us for today for this day, and more importantly, we pray for an eternal word. Not just a rhema, a now word, but an eternal word. And so, Lord, I pray for my heart and for the hearts of the faithful that have gathered and for the one who's here who's most distant from you, that you would press through even the hardest of hearts, that you would tenderize and fertilize the soil that is our hearts, that your good word the good seed of your good word would go deep into our hearts. And what you choose to do with it, Lord, we know not. We're like the farmer. We plant seeds and we sleep. And you cause it to grow. And so we trust you, Jesus. We, we, we grant you all the glory and all the permission you need. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've pretty, pretty much forgotten how to preach on a weekly basis um, because I'm much more right now a... a a paratrooper, I get to drop in and preach a what what we call in the preaching world a silver bullet message. You know, you have a few that you you have that no matter where you are, you know they work, and so you can drop in and preach a message, and then you you go on out, and then somebody has to clean up the mess behind you. And so when you're preaching every week, there's a rhythm and there's a a beauty, there's a pressure that's in it, but there's also a beauty to it that allows you to say what you feel like the Lord would have you to say that week, not needing to say everything because you'll be back next week if you mess it up a bit, you can clean it up the next week. And I really miss that, but I also know that you lose. It's like getting out of shape. You lose something. So I, I, I know I'm confessing to you up front that this is not a proper message. It doesn't have the proper, you know, takeoff and landing where I, in three, you know, three points, a poem, a joke, and, and, a, and something clever for you to do to change your life. It's, uh, I, I'm trusting the fact the Lord will use it in a different way. Um, and ultimately what I want to do is I'm going to orient us to that verse that's on the wall back there, but in a different way maybe than I ever have talked about it before here. That verse comes uh, from 
1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, where Paul says to the Thessalonian church something that's so profoundly mysterious to me anyway that uh, many commentators call it the gospel within the gospel. He says that we loved you so much we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel but our lives as well. And it's so wildly mysterious because if you understand what Paul's saying, he's saying when we came to you, before we knew you, we were compelled, propelled, catalyzed by love. We, our love for you meant we had to come to you. And you're like, well, you didn't even know us. How could you love us? And Paul's saying, I don't really know because I used to hate you. It's so much so that I wanted to eradicate you from the earth. But now with Christ. Love shed abroad in my heart. I feel nothing but love for you, even though I don't know you, and that means I had to come to you. And I think that our orientation to this verse has, has fueled this church in a missional way, in a way that almost has a bit of a godly, divine, beautiful pressure to it, that we have to live our lives not for ourselves, but outside of ourselves, sharing the gospel and our lives with others. And it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But I want to reorient us to this verse today in a way where we would see not just the compelling voice of God to thrust us out in power and authority to the world to make a difference for those who don't know him, but also that we would hear the inhaling work voice of God, the one that breathes us in and deals with us internally and soothes us and comforts us and blesses us. And I want you to hear in this verse the blessing, and I'm going to unpack blessing in some other ways as well. Um, I want to tell you first, though, how good it is to be home. And, you know, I, for the course of the life of this church, I have, when I was the, you know, the, the senior pastor, I was perpetually going places. And I would tell people, it's like I'm on a leash, like an elastic leash. And I would stretch its limits more and more and more and always come back and feeling like when I came back that I was better for going and better for being home and living under the grace of a church that would allow me to go and, and now that leash has gotten much, much longer, so I'm here very little, you know. But when I do come back, I have the same feeling I've always felt, that it's good to be back home amongst family. You can let your hair down. You can be yourself in a very different way. And I've just come back from, I'm, I'm still jet-lagged from a very long trip to some very incredible places, places I could tell you about and places I can't tell you anything about. Um, and seeing things that blow my mind, I've been in, massive mega churches, and I've been in little dugout cave churches. I've been in churches with a few people. I've been in a church with, with a guy who is the only believer in his family, enjoying the hospitality of his family, who are all Muslims, the father being pretty devout, pretty against Christianity, but very hospitable in a Middle Eastern way, where we essentially had church around his table with him there. I've been in churches of all kinds, uh, you know, traveling a lot here uh, since we've moved up to Kentucky. And I'll tell you this, that we're nothing special here. This, we're not better than any other place I've gone, but there's no other church I'd rather be in. This church is, this is a great place. It really is. And, and I've not been anywhere where I'm like, you know, this is a way better place than Maranatha. I, I've only thought to myself, I'm so thankful for the church family that I have, that we have, that Carol and I have that exists in, in Jacksonville. And I will tell you that if you don't think people watch and follow online what's going on, my wife, I guarantee you right now, is, is, is she's faithfully engaging in the life of this church. I'm gone a lot. 
She's not, so she's here every Sunday with you. And I told Brian last night, I said, let this be an encouragement to the streaming you're doing. She worships in the living room no differently than if she were here. She participates no differently. She's taking notes. She's engaged. She's hugging you as best as she can. She tells me who she saw, you know. And so uh, we're thankful. We're so thankful for your faithfulness that allows us to continue to be faithful where we are. This verse, uh, in case you haven't ever heard about it before, 1 Thessalonians 2.8, the Lord spoke this into my heart like in April or May or something like that of like 2002. And I knew that as I was preparing to, to plant a church, that wherever it would be, it would be on the, on the basis of this verse. And etched in the concrete of the sidewalk of a house on Timbermill Lane in Oakleaf is this verse with a cross uh, that was our sowing seed into the neighborhood before we'd even moved in. And it continues to fuel and motivate my life um, in, in, in ways that what I principally do now with my time, in case you're wondering, is I spend most of my time working amongst the unreached and unengaged people of the world. That's really where most of my time is spent, is either pastoring, strategizing, advocating for those who are working amongst unreached, unengaged, or actually being amongst the unreached and unengaged themselves. I came back from this trip and I've shared the gospel. I had the most profound gospel-sharing trip I've ever had in my life. I shared the gospel with a man who, who is uh, one of the very key leaders, political leaders, in a place that is war-torn and it is hopeless. And I had a chance to have dinner with him and ask him the question, if this all went away tomorrow, what would you want to do with your life? And he said, I, I've never once had an opportunity to pause and think about that question. I have no hope personally. And he said, the thing I, thing I appreciate about genuine Christians that I've met, the few that I've met, is the peace that you have that I can't quite understand. And I said, you know, that's, that hope and that peace is available to you. And he didn't accept it then and there. I wish it were so simple. But he heard it, you know, loudly and clearly. I told him the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and, and the fourth man in the fire. And he said, you know, someday I'd like to meet this fourth man. And so I'll get into the message in, in, in just a second, but I want to tell you, I just think it's appropriate. I, this is not the core of the message, but I want you to know, in case you don't, this is always worth repeating and hearing, and it's either an encouragement or a provocation to you, that about half the world's population is unreached and unengaged. But, you know, over three billion, somewhere between three and three and a half billion non-Christian humans that we label as unreached. And that's made up of nations of people or ethno-linguistic groups of people within nations whose exposure to, the, to Christianity is so minimal that it's not self-sustaining. They couldn't exist without an outside influence, you know, declaring and sharing the gospel with them. These are people who desperately need uh, uh, faithful and unashamed followers of Jesus to come to them and to share the story of our redemption. And the Roughly 41% of the world population, about 7,000 or so unreached people groups. Most of them are Muslim, Hindu, and Buddhist populations. They live in a little window that we call the 1040 window. Most of them live in this window that you know, includes almost all of the Middle East and extends through West Africa. It's predominantly poor. It's completely unevangelized. They're unreached because they don't want to be reached. And reaching them is not easy. It's not even legal in most places. And... One of the reasons it's important that I would tell you this is because this is such a missions-minded church, and you guys get it, 
Uh, and I love it. I love that the, the leadership here is continuing to invest in this. And I think that one of the ways that I'm proud of our church is that you get to do ministry through me. And, and, and when I go, you go. And I can't wait for, to take some of you to places that you might blow your mind that you could even get to. But one of the reasons it's important to, to keep this in mind is I want to just, here on Halloween, just give you one statistic that always blows me away, and that's this. There's so little money that goes towards reaching about half of the world's population that it, it just would blow you away. It's like a tenth of one percent of every dollar that goes into missions goes to reaching the, unre- uh, the unreached and unengaged. And so in America every year, more money is spent on Halloween costumes for pets than reaching the unreached. Let that sink in. And if you bought a Halloween costume for your pet, I'm not judging you. <laughs> Just telling you that's the... But a little I am, probably. So let me dive into this, into this, this passage, and then I'm going to be all over the Bible, so if, you, if you're a note-taker or a Bible... Uh, you like to have your Bible open, uh, you, I'll be hearing your pages turn. If you're on a fake Bible on your phone, then you can, you can, I won't hear anything, but that works as well. I'm an old man, and I 100% confess that I love the sound of turning pages in a Bible. It just, for me, it's an emotional thing. It makes, it, you know, makes me feel close to the Lord. So, This passage in 1 Thessalonians 2.8 is so imperative for us. Like I said, people call it the gospel within the gospel, because what it does is it gives us the motivation for Paul's message or his mission. If you want to know what his mission is or what our mission is, it's simple. It's the Great Commission. That's always the central mission. There's many ways in which our streams come off of that or come back into that. You know, the imperative nature of worship and intercession when Martina's sharing about harp and bowl. There's, you know, that is the cat, that's what catalyzes mission, right? You don't have mission without having it come out of the overflow of what the Lord's doing in our lives. This is beautiful. But really, the mission is still, you know, that the, the whole gospel will be shared with the whole world, and then Jesus comes back. You know, there's this, and you, but that's the what, but if you were to ask why, why would Paul do it? What's the motivation behind it? This verse gives us the motivation. Paul is saying that he's fueled by this love that he can't, it's just, it's infected him in a way that he can't get away from it. And, and while he used to be the guy who was collecting names to arrest people to bring them back, you know, for persecution, he's now persecuting strangers with love. This is exactly what it meant in, in Romans 12 when it says practice hospitality. It means literally to persecute strangers with love. And Paul says, this is what I'm doing, Thessaloniki people. I'm going to come after you with love as best as I can. I'm going to overwhelm you with love. And that's the whole motivation I have. And I think for you, the way the rubber meets the road in the pressure part of this, the application of your life It's simple. It's that you need to find for your life the intersection between the truth of the gospel and your life and live there. You need to find the place where your life most deeply intersects the truth of the gospel. The the, the gospel, by the way, is not just a method of persuasion. It's not coming up with four spiritual laws or the Roman road or something like that. The foundation of the gospel is the story of Israel. This is the foundation of the gospel. If you don't get the story of Israel, you don't get the whole gospel. It begins in the very beginning, and it builds towards a point that Paul says in Galatians, in the fullness of time, God sent his son. It's built the foundation of Israel with, the, on top of that, the story of Jesus, the redemption, the completion that comes through the, the story of Jesus. 
Of course, we have in that the history of the church and all of the theology that we get out of the letters. And then from that, we come up with a way to share that winsomely so that people will be attracted to it. And then we live in that in a way to see it come to life. And you need to find the way in which that gospel, the totality of the gospel, most beautifully intersects with your life, your story. You weren't born a a believer. And so at some point, you decided to give Jesus access to your heart in a total way. And where that intersects with your life is where you need to live because it's where you are most capable, most valuable in sharing what Jesus has done for you and what he means to the world through you. The whole gospel for your whole life. And I think that the most significant thing that you need to take away from that is that we need to break down the walls in our life. If you are compartmentalized in any way, you're, you're, you're not yet there. And I'm confessing to you that I'm not yet there. But there needs to be less compartments between, let's say, work Jeff and family Jeff and Jeff that's mad at Carol or Jeff that's irritated with people who are doing something, making him wait in a line or whatever it may be. The more that we can eradicate the compartments and just the Jeff would become just Jeff who follows Jesus, then I would become an integrated person not disjointed, not divided within myself. A house divided against itself will never stand. And when we compartmentalize our faith and we turn it on and turn it off, we never grow. And so in my mind, the most central mandate for us as followers of Jesus is to bring this passage into our hearts and to live it out, that we would find the truth of the gospel, the whole gospel, let it invade our lives, that we would live as integrated people who can't help but share it because it is who we are. In the Middle East, people say, I can never become a Christian because that's your identity. My identity is something else. And I would argue with them until I realize they're right. That I have, in fact, been crucified with Christ and no longer live with Christ. My identity has been changed. And this is who I am. And if it's who I am, then it should be easy to see. You should know, know it. And so that's kind of the, the, the preface for saying, I want to take that truth of us being propelled out in faith to share the gospel in our lives with everyone we meet and turn it around so that you would see in this the blessing of this passage. It's not just a mandate for how we live. This, I believe these words, this is just my opinion, I can't prove this, but I believe these words that Paul writes to the Thessalonian church are words that he heard from the Lord. I believe that this word is a word from the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but the life of my son. I believe this is a word that comes directly from the Godhead as a blessing on those who hear and believe that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. We could exchange our sin for his righteousness. And when we do so, we come under the blessing of, this, of, of, of the Godhead who loved us so much before we knew him that he was willing to send the entirety of heaven and his very son to die for us that we might live. And the Lord, I think, deeply desires to see that blessing, the blessing of the truth of this poured out into our souls in the indispensable condition. I think E. Stanley Jones says this in Victory Through Surrender. The indispensable condition of receiving greater blessing from the Lord is intimacy with Jesus. Nothing will bring us greater blessing than time spent at his feet. Nothing will give you greater blessing than, than, than eradicating all the obstacles that you have and getting at his feet. And I will tell you, I don't think I've ever said it as clearly as I'm going to say it right now, 
I have unlocked a secret in my own personal life to a deep and abiding relationship with Jesus that I believe it's practical, and I think it's about 100% guaranteed it will work for all of you, and probably none of you will do it. You want to hear what it is? Quit social media today. Quit it today. Quit it today. Take out your phone and delete the apps right now. If you want a deeper relationship with Jesus that will propel you into the nations and change the world, I know what it was like to pastor before social media was a thing. And people would tell me all the time they didn't have time to go deep with Jesus. And I understood it because my life's busy too. And then social media came along, and when none of us had time, all of a sudden we're getting messages on Sundays that say, here's the amount of time you spent this week on social media, and it's hours upon hours upon hours. If you just took the time you're spending in something that I believe is rooted, I'm just going to say it, rooted in demonic, and you took that time and you plunged that into a relationship with Jesus, just that time alone would change you and change the world. So if you want a deeper relationship with the Lord, it's simple, I think, just eradicate the obstacles to it. And the number one thing that I see day in and day out is social media. If it's part of your job, I get it. And you've got to do it as part of your job. But how about the personal stuff? I, I did this quietly. I didn't make any fanfare about this. I did this right before COVID started because I felt the Lord was asking me to. And my life has been richer for it. I know nothing about you now except what I hear from you. or from, And I love that. I have to talk to you to know about you. Because when I saw you on Facebook, I, I, I assumed the fact that because you took a nice picture with your spouse that your marriage was good, only to find out that it was really wrecked and it wasn't real. And so if you want a deeper relationship, quit it today. You can do it right now. You can, you can even just forget what I'm saying and just eradicate it from your phone and then go home and do it on your, just erase your accounts and never look back. And it'll work. And like I said, probably none of you will do it. Uh, somebody will. Somebody will. And some of you have, and you're bearing fruit because of it. In my mind, the blessed life, the, the blessing of God is exactly what Kayla was, was singing. When we get to the point, or maybe it's you, Brian, I don't know, when all my fountains are in you, when everything that I get joy from derives from the fountain of the Godhead, when heaven is pouring out on me in such a profound way that I cannot identify an aspect of my life that I have joy and blessing in, that doesn't find its rootedness, its, its genesis in the heart of God. And what I found is that when I was a young believer, the difficulty I had in passionately loving Jesus is that nobody taught me to passionately love Jesus. I just thought that, and, and I guess by default believed, that what I had to do is I had to just not sin. And so, do you know the reason I did the, stu- the sinful stuff that I did prior to really surrendering my life to Christ? You know why I did that stuff? Because I loved doing it. I was passionate about it. And so I exchanged my passion for sin, for apathy, for Jesus. I just would sit there and go, well, if I don't do anything bad, I must be doing good. Nobody taught me that you could love Jesus with a fiery heart, and he would love you back with a fiery heart, and it would light you on fire. And the way I would get over the old loves is a new love. And it would burn brighter in me than the lust and the sorts of things that, you know, that that caused me to desire to pursue things that weren't of him. And so find all of your fountains in him. And let me just say this then, what is a blessing? When we talk about the blessing of God in our life, what is it? And there's a primary Hebrew word and there's a primary Greek word. The primary Greek word that we use for blessing is this, it means literally a good word. It, it, it means to speak a good word. We get the word 
good news or evangelism or evangelical really comes from the idea, the Greek idea of blessing, which comes, is rooted from the Hebrew idea of a spoken blessing. It means some, the cause to prosper. It means to make something that's, that doesn't have joy, make it joyful. And what I like most about the concept of blessing is commanded blessings. The, 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 the commanded blessings of God. Are you familiar with this phrase, commanded blessings? Commanded blessings are kind of like what God does in creation. Do you remember? Do any of you remember how God creates? He speaks. It's, we, the theologians call it ex nihilo, from nothing. God says something, and even though it wasn't, it is, just because he says it. So he says, let there be light. And nobody ran around going, well, you know, he said light. Let's get some light, guys. Get moving here. Put some wires together. There was no concept of light. He speaks light, and there's light. He speaks life, and there's life. In the same exact way, the the fountains from the Godhead, when they're commanded by God, are real because he speaks them. The blessing is formed and commanded by his voice, by his authority, by his saying so. And when we look in the word, we find that there are commanded blessings all throughout it. And God speaks them, they're real, they're there. And, and a commanded blessing is a promise of God that carries within itself the irrevocable power for its fulfillment. It's like Isaiah 55, when it says that the, the word of God won't return void, right? It, it, it won't return to him until it's accomplished what it was sent to earth to do. This is how it works with the commanded blessing of God. It's irrevocable. We can't revoke it. We can just choose not to live into it by disagreeing with it. Or we can choose to agree with it. They're conditional in that way. One of my favorite professors, who I have the opportunity to actually hang out with now because I'm in the same town with him, talked, taught a lot and still teaches a lot about how the will of God and the wrath of God are actually two sides of the same coin. And so when God ushers blessing, commands blessing on our life, it is a propelling force that fuels us, that, that just sweeps us away into his purposes so that when we go with it, it, it's almost as though we're not having to work hard to, to, to go where he's sending us to go. And so we feel the force of God moving us from, from A to B, and we're like, man, I don't even really know how that happened, but I, God moved me here. And I've had conversations with many of you. I'm, I'm thinking of you, Steve. I remember a conversation I had with you. We were talking about when your life was in a particular place, in a particular spot in the world, it didn't matter what you did. You felt the purpose of God. You felt the purpose. You could change tires. You could, it didn't matter what it was. You knew you were doing it under the purposes of God and had meaning. And then you came to a place in your life where that was stripped from you, and you're like, it didn't matter how big a thing I was doing. It didn't feel like it had purpose. And that's such a huge indication to me of when we get into the commanded blessing of God and we start to feel it, it propels us. But as soon as we turn against it, that very force that would move us where God wants us to go, we begin to experience it not as blessing but as wrath. It's like walking upstream against a, you know, a torrential uh, river. You know, it's, it's impossible almost you know, to, to, to make our way. And so the will of God and the wrath of God are oftentimes opposite sides of the same coin. Blessing and cursing are oftentimes based in you know, the way that we are aligning our lives with the Lord. Now, it's important for me to tell you this that blessing, a blessed life is not a trouble-free life. God produces so much blessing from pressure. So much blessing from pressure. The lessons that I've learned in the last year or so of my life where I've dealt with a lot of sickness. I saw somebody recently who said, man, I haven't seen you in a couple of years. You've really gotten old. I said, thank you. 
But I was watching a movie that I was appeared in this little thing, and I was like, you know, even Carol said, yeah, you, you, you do look kind of different from a couple years ago. And so there's been some pressure in my life, but the lessons the Lord has spoken into my life through this, this season are so deep and so real. And I came across a, a quote from A.W. Tozer. You might not like it or even agree with it. I've had to meditate on it for the better part of a week to kind of wrap my mind around this. But this is what Tozer says. It is doubtful whether God can bless a person greatly until he has hurt him deeply. It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Think of Job and, uh, and, and let your mind wrestle with that. So a blessed life doesn't just mean a, a trouble-free life. Um, and I want to talk to you just quickly about, I won't spend much time on this, but just some examples of when God commands blessing and the way that we might see that working in our lives. And then I'm going to close by asking you, those of you who are 50 years old and older, to help me bless those who aren't. I want to turn at the end of Psalm 145 and see what happens when one generation commends the works of God to the next and see blessing flowing from generation to generation. We'll get there. So I'm just preparing you. If you're, if you're 50 or over, I'm asking you to jump on the team and help. So here, here's, here's a few examples of how I believe commanded blessing works in our life. Flip over in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. Verses uh, 8 to 12. This is, a, this is a passage that what we see in it typically is we hear preachers using this to pound uh, congregations to tithe. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that, because you should. You know, the fact of the matter is, is if I'd taken the time in that story about unreached people groups to tell you the story of how much income comes in to believers in, the, in America and how much comes, makes its way to the church, it's, it would be horrific for your ears, because most of you do give generously, but... I don't think Malachi 3 is primarily about giving or even generosity. I think it's about trustful obedience, what it means to really trust God. Uh, and so this is what it says. Will a man, but will you ask, how, how are we to return? And then verse 8, will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, well, how do we rob you? The answer, in tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. This is what the Lord says. Put me to the test. Put it on me. This isn't something that you're going to have to be subjective about. You, 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 you objectively bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and then see what I do with it. And, and you're going, well, what are you going to do? What's the test? Here's what he says. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. <laughs> I was just talking to a friend who uh, comes out of this church, and she was telling me about some stuff that she's doing and, 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 and the freedom of giving something away. And I was like, you know, you'll, this is the truth you know. You'll never outgive God. And that's, I think, what the Lord's saying here is, is if you trust me in this, you're going to get much more than, you're, than I'm ever going to ask you to give. I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land says the Lord Almighty. That, to me, is such a beautiful passage about what it means to, to experience victory through surrender, to give over to God the trust of everything that's meaningful to us. And in America, I can think of nothing that we rely on more than our stuff, nothing that, that's a hindrance to us more than our stuff. And so, really, I think the lesson from this is like an old preacher said, God, teach me to give to you 
as you have given to me, lest you give to me as I have given to you. And so he commands his blessing from the place of, uh, of, of trustful obedience. He also commands his blessing from the place of unity in the household of faith. And I want to say to you that all of these areas of blessing that I'm going to quickly work through, I think really apply to the household of faith. Like, I think there is, a, there is commanded blessing that you can, there's a general blessing, a general grace that is operated in the world that if you cooperate with the purposes of God, your life will be better. I often tell unbelievers, if you just follow the precepts of the New Testament without following Jesus, your life will be better just for that. You'll be a happier person. There's general blessing, but the commanded, specific, deep blessings of God really fall to the household of faith. And here's one that I love deeply. It's Psalm 133. I think it's such an imperative word for 2021, 2022, uh, the, the, the Christian world we live in. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as, it is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, which I wish we had the time. I wish I could just bring Marianne and Steve up right now to share with you the significance of the dew on Hermon falling on Mount Zion and all the, all the literal uh, uh, meaning that has as well as the figurative meaning that uh, that has. But this is how it ends. For there the Lord commands his blessing, even life evermore. Everlasting life, eternal life, is the blessing that the Lord commands out of this, this aspect of... of, of uh, of existence, which is existing in unity in the household of faith. <clears throat> I say that God commands his blessing not simply on unity, but on the unity of believers, because I think you can point to all kinds of unified bodies in the world, or sometimes unified bodies, that can come together theoretically in unity, like the UN or Congress. Um, but they can only take their unity so far, and, and it can't oftentimes fall way short of what God wants. And the commanded blessing that God is speaking in this passage is spoken specifically over the household of faith, really over the Jewish people that we've been then grafted into. So just to make clear to you that I don't think this is a blessing for the church that's replaced Israel. I think this is a blessing in both these cases that God speaks over the Jewish people that we have now been grafted into these promises. And the greatest illustration I can see of that when you bring it into the light of the New Testament is Acts chapter 2, where God pours out his Holy Spirit as they were together in one accord and received together in unity what God wanted to do. And when a church walks in unity, the blessing of God is commanded upon them. And why is that important for this, this year in particular? Well, it's because I've watched, and I've been around a lot now, I've seen churches that have been planted in America, for example, in the last year, based simply on people's position on COVID. That's false unity. It's, that, it's not unity based in absolute truth. It's a relative truth, and it's the sort of thing that actually even gets into the area of like, well, we can agree to disagree, but when we, when we disagree on something like epidemiology or politics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, <clears throat> we can still have the ultimate unity if our unity is fixed on the lordship of Jesus. But if our unity is fixed on something less than that, eventually it will be swept away like sinking sand. And so any lesser allegiance is like a rope in the water with no anchor. You know, it, you can look like you're, you're, you're taught and tied down to something, but you're drifting because there's no anchor at the end of your rope. This is what false unity looks like. If you walk in unity, though, it, 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 it puts some pressure on you. 
because it causes you to release within your own heart the offense that you carry towards other people who are in your household of faith. It causes you to let go of the, of the, of the bitterness or the anger that you might have, that you might even meaningfully have. I would even say to you it comes close to righteous anger. Why do I say it comes close? Because I don't really think any of us are able to steward righteous anger other than Jesus himself. And so I'm like, it's just best to let it go. But even when you have some sort of justification, the best thing for us to do in the household of faith is to, is to mend fences, to surrender our fence, to go to the other person. Maturity in the household of faith means that you're willing to lead in the area of making peace. And I'm thinking right now of a person that's in this room who I love very deeply, who a uh, long time ago had a falling out with a friend, and I was able to say to this person, I'm, I'm going to encourage you because I consider you to be the one who has greater authority and greater maturity in this case, even though I think you're right in it to go to that person and to, and to fix it. And they did. And I love, I, I don't think I've ever seen greater joy in the, in the body than when offenses get dealt with in a biblical way. Peace is made. That's different from peace being kept where stuff's swept under the rug. But peace is actually made and offenses are laid down. All right. Finally, this is, a, this is a blessing that I love. And I, Brian, I think you use this all the time now as a benediction out of Numbers chapter 6. It's, it's the blessing that the Lord commands that would be spoken by the priests over the people in, in Numbers chapter 6. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons and tell them, This is how you will bless the sons of Israel. You'll say to them these words, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. And then verse 27, which we never read, but it kind of tells you what happens. It says, so they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and then I will bless them. The, the point of this isn't that a pastor gets up and speaks these words, and you go, well, Brian loves us this week, even when he's awkward. The point of when Brian speaks those words as, as a benediction is not that he's speaking for himself, but on behalf of the Lord God Almighty, he's saying, the blessing of God, the peace of God be upon you. And the Lord says, when these words are spoken, I give you the authority to command this blessing onto those who walk with me. And so if you do not walk with the Lord, we can talk about that today. We should talk about that today so that all the commanded blessings of God would flow into your life and you would feel the propulsion of that. But here's what I want to do. Flipping over to Psalm 145, and I'm closing, so if there's somebody coming up to play music, come on up and play music. This is why I think this is important. I was talking to, most of you know, Rich Stevenson. I'm going to be with him. Brian and I will be with him later this week. And Rich is preaching this morning out of Psalm 145, and we were talking about it. I was like, man, that's so good. I need to just steal that. And occasionally he steals stuff from me, but usually I steal from him. And this is what it says in Psalm 145, part of it. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. And all, all you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. 
They will tell the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom's everlasting and your dominion endures through all generations. The beauty and the power of this is, is that the Lord is saying that one generation will speak these words over another. And I believe there's significant blessing that comes through the spoken blessing. Ex nihilo, from nothing. You might not have any sense of blessing or feel any blessing in your life. I think even the declaration of these words could be a game changer for you. And so I'm going to ask if you're a believer and you're 50 or over, just if you'll just stand up where you are. Now, thank you. Just stay standing. Now, will you slip out into, an, into the aisle? you just to turn yourself so that you can see somebody who's not standing with you in the aisle. And I know there's elders here in the congregation, elders of, of this church who are under 50, and I'm, I know that you carry authority, and I'm asking you not to stand in this because I want this to be generational transference from one generation to another. And I'm asking those of you who are 50 to find somebody, even to, to, to act like you're in a turret and swivel yourself around and find people, and I want you to extend a hand bless. And I'm going to speak these words again from number six. And then when I'm done, I'm going to come down here and pray. And I'm going to ask as many of you 50-year-olds or older who are willing to come forward and to stand here. And then after we've done this, anybody who wants to come up and receive a blessing, you can just bless as you see fit then. For the Spirit of the Lord is there's freedom. And you might have words to bless somebody that are completely different from anything I would think to say. And so if you're willing, old people, I have news for you. 50 is not middle-aged. Most of you aren't going to live to be 100. You're at least on the young side of being old. I'm okay with that. I hope you are. Martina and I talked about it already. We're young at heart. So I'm asking you old people, after you've done this, as I've preached or, or prayed number six again, that you would just come up here and be a, be a band, a generational band that would seek to bless those who are coming behind us, who are going to need to carry this, this, this thing forward into more difficult days that lie ahead. And so those of you who are under 50, receive this blessing from your older sisters and brothers. May the Lord bless you. There's such significant words. May the favor of God compelling joy that comes from the Godhead invade you, wash over you, bless you and keep you. Keep you. In a day and age where so many people are falling away, may the very voice of God, the blessing of God, commanded from heaven, keep you in the fold. Help you to persevere because I know what it's like. You feel like quitting victory in the kingdom of God the great life in the kingdom of God is just persevering if you don't quit you win so may the Lord bless you and keep you may the Lord make his face shine upon you may he give you his face and be gracious to you the Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace Kayla 
take it away. And if those of you who are standing now are willing to come forward here, then I want to say to those of you who aren't, come forward and let one of these people hug you and bless you. Tell you you're you're loved by God and His goodness pervades your life if you'll just let it wash over you. And so old people come up here and minister to the young people. I bring to you